Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to B-Side. This is Tom again. And today on this podcast, I would like to talk about the concept of intertextuality. Now, I had brought this up on our Spaceballs episode, and I feel as if I hadn't done a particularly good job of talking about this concept, its relationship to film adaptation and its relationship to allusion. And so I I want to work through that today a little bit and just some thoughts on intertextuality and some of the, the scholarship that has contributed to this concept. Um, And so to start, intertextuality is a complex term. It's changed a lot through the years. And the first person I know of to come up with this was the philosopher Julia Kristeva, the French philosopher. So she had intertextuality, um, (laughs) which is exactly what it sounds like. And what she's trying to do with that is with that concept, is synthesize the ideas of the the Russian film theorist and uh, literary theorist Bakhtin with the linguistic theorist Fernandi Saussure. Now, Saussure had this idea of semiotics, which is the study of the relationship between signs and things in the world um, and how signs derive meaning. And then Bakhtin's idea that works, um, artistic works, novels, films, etc., are in constant dialogue with other works. And so there's this, this combination of, of philosophical concepts which he's drawing from in order to form this idea of the intertextual. So for Kristeva, intertextuality replaces intersubjectivity. So the the relationship between um, different minds, let's say, Uh, because meaning doesn't go directly from writer to reader. So it's not like you're getting into the mind of the writer. You're not entering the subjectivity of the writer, but rather it is mediated through works, codes, uh, things like that. So you can think of, of codes as being certain signs, illusions, materials like that. So, for example, if we look at, at Spaceballs and we look at Dark Helmet, we know that Dark Helmet isn't just a character who's pursuing our heroes in, in Spaceballs. Dark Helmet is communicating all of those associations we have and our culture has with Darth Vader. Darth Vader is such a resonant part of American pop culture that by having someone like Dark Helmet who looks like Dark Vader, who sounds like Dark Vader, Darth Vader, excuse me, you're able to communicate all of those associations to bring that into play. Okay, so that would be kind of a code that would be communicated from writer to reader, from Mel Brooks to the audience of Spaceballs. Um, and other works work like this as well. So, you know, uh, Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake, the kind of works of James Joyce, are just 
filled with these references to other works. And in fact, they, as a work, operate in their relationship to other works. So that sounds complicated, but but what do I mean by that? So at one point in James Joyce's Ulysses, we have um, one of the chapters told from the first-person perspective of, I believe, an Irish nationalist who is in a bar and talking. The first-person pronoun, of course, is I. This is a specific allusion to the Odyssey when, um, when Odysseus encounters the Cyclops, the person, the, the creature, rather, with one eye. So the reason for the form that Joyce selects is because of the illusion, the, the intertextual mediation between the, the Joycean novel and the Homeric epic. And so that is why um, why Ulysses and, and a lot of the modern modes are built out of kind of an intertextual uh, relationship and are intertextual. Um, and this, of course, is necessary for something like parody or satire, which requires intertextual material because it has to allude to something. So that's that's kind of this idea, is this synthesis of Saussure and Bakhtin um, and this concept of signs and dialogue. Signs, how we communicate dialogue, the connection between texts. Now, moving on to Roland Barthes. Barthes is also a, a literary critic, kind of in that structuralist, post-structuralist, post-modern portion of criticism. He's like slightly before Foucault and Derrida and them. Um, So for Barthes, an adaptation is a text that's inherently plural. Um, And so an adaptation is is kind of filled with these kind of echoes and citations. um, And and therefore, an adaptation is just kind of not the transfer of one one work into another work or one work into another medium, something like that. Um, but it, it's kind of, by definition, filled up with these resonant intertextual references, this resonant intertextual material. Um, as we advance further along, uh, more modern critic Linda Hutchinson um, she, in her theory of adaptation, tries to look at differences between adaptation and intertextuality. Um, Hutchin sees adaptation from the process of reception, so not necessarily the ontology of what it is, but the epistemology, uh, the, the how do we know what it is? How do we as audience receive the adaptation? Um, for her, adaptation is a form of intertextuality. Um, Intertextuality is material that's kind of being exchanged between works, and adaptation is something that we experience as adaptation. Our memory of other works, our ability to reference other works, um, that that resonates through repetition with variation. Um, And so what that means is that Adaptation itself 
uses kind of intertextual material and it repeats um, something. It repeats a work, but it varies it. So if we could think of the um, the David Lean adaptation of Great Expectations that repeats Charles Dickens's work of Great Expectations, but then it varies it. It varies the plot in part because it has to reduce it because it, it's a film and not a book. It varies the medium. It's a film, not a book, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we move into Alfonso Cuaron's version of Great Expectations from the 1990s, again, we're repeating it, even repeating the media form, but then it's it's varied again. We go from England to um, Florida. We, we go from kind of the boonies moving into London to Florida moving into New York. Pip, in this case, is a an artist. Uh, so the entire um, world is different. However, we're still repeating the kind of intertextual material that Dickens created. And it might even be kind of fuzzy to say Dickens created it. Maybe he is just kind of adopting intertextual material. And I think somebody like Bakhtin would be closer to that reading of Dickens. Um, and so Hutchin sees, or Hutchian, it's spelled H-U-T-C-H-E-O-N, uh, however you pronounce it, she sees adaptation from the process of reception again. Um, and therefore, it is a form of intertextuality. It is material, intertextual material drawn from other works, but it is also process. It's the process of taking that intertextual material and making it something new using the memory of its audience's other work. We also have, I believe from her, this concept of interdetermination. Interdetermination suggests that the influence between texts move in each and every direction. Um, so therefore, when we talk about, let's say, I, I know one of the essays I read, I think it was from Hutchian, we talk about West Side Story, right? Now, West Side Story, for people who don't know it, it's a musical, it is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Um, now that they're in New York City, they're, they're street gangs. Instead of the Montesquieu's and Capulets, you have the Jets and the Sharks, whatever. It, it's an adaptation there. So you would think that the, the creators of this, you know, like, like Stephen Sondheim, would have read Romeo and Juliet and then adopted it consequently. However, what the concept of interdetermination argues is that when you think of the audience, when you include the receivers of the artistic work into the equation, not only is, is West Side Story adopting, adapting, taking from Romeo and Juliet, it is simultaneously now influencing Romeo and Juliet. A lot of people born after 1950, let's say, the boomer generation might have encountered West Side Story before they encountered Romeo and Juliet, or they had a closer, more memorable relationship with West Side Story than Romeo and Juliet. So therefore, their understanding of Romeo and Juliet 
and maybe even our understanding of Romeo and Juliet is in some way filtered through their encounter with West Side Story. So therefore we have that concept you could see there of interdetermination, that it's not just linear from point A to point B to point C, but once the receptor's in there, the receptor may be starting at C and looking back to A through a memory of C. Now, another critic, I think his first name is Dennis, Dennis Cutchins, looks at the work of Bakhtin and then the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Cutchins argues that the texts we experience becomes part of us. It becomes part of our personality. And an adaptation that fails, fails to take into account the elements almost of our personality. And so a failed adaptation or an adaptation that feels kind of off or undone, sometimes this may feel to the receiver, the audience, almost a criticism of who we are as people more than just a failure of film. And so when we start to see the culture of film, which is really a big part, I think, of, of American culture, of um, yeah, of who we are as Americans, as receivers of this work, that what Cutchins argues then is that kind of failures to remake movies, and we hear people complain about remakes all the time, that when remakes fail, it feels like kind of a failure of the adapter, of the filmmakers, of to, to understand the personality of the audience that it's adapting. And it almost becomes kind of a, an unintentional criticism of who we are as, what, as audience members. Um, this is interesting because in theater, remounting plays is just a part of what theater does. So, you know, a, a new staging of Shakespeare is as common as dirt. Um, you know, every year somebody's restaging Shakespeare, every year somebody's restaging O'Neill, um, musical, straight play, it doesn't matter. The remounting of theater plays is part of the theatrical experience, seeing different people's versions of King Lear, seeing different people's versions of um, Mary Tyrone from uh, Long Day's Journey into Night. These are all essential to the theater experience and the, the theater community. Um, and in fact, the memory of theater is often linked to the particular person's performance of a particular role. So it's not just Mary Tyrone, but Catherine Hepburn's Mary Tyrone. Now, this is kind of weird because it's a film, film reference right there. Um, but I know for me personally, my understanding of, of Mary Tyrone, of that character, is filtered through Vanessa Redgrave's performance. Um, God, years ago, I think maybe 2004, something like that, she appeared on Broadway in that role. And my understanding of that character is now linked to Redgrave's performance. However, that seems to be very different, as Cutchins says about film. And, and I think he's right about that, that the kind of ossified object, and ossified's the wrong word, it implies it's kind of um, not living anymore, right? But certainly film is, is a closed object. You know, when we replicate film, we replicate the same thing over and over again. It's not like a theater experience, which is certainly varied from night to night or from production to production. Um, but then when we, we change 
that film form into something else, it often feels like a, a violation of the individuals who made that film popular by their attendance. So I want to jump now back into uh, Bakhtin a little bit. And just to give a little more context here, um, Bakhtin is Mikhail Bakhtin. He's a Russian philosopher. His years are 1895 to 1975. Okay. And so Bakhtin wrote a lot on the novel and he helped kind of define the term almost. And his idea of novelization, I'm not going to go into here. I I won't pretend off the top of my head. I, I remember all of it. Um, but he is incredibly important for adaptation studies and conversations about intertextuality fall under adaptation studies. So one work, Bakhtin, in in one work, Bakhtin posits two different type of texts. He talks about the canon and the grotesque. For him, the canon is not the canon of somebody like Northrop Fry or Harold Bloom, right? And, and Harold Bloom has a work called The Western Canon, and The Western Canon is all the great literary works that have ever existed. And it, it goes from the, you know, the usual suspects, Homer to the ancient Greek plays to, um, you know, Cicero to... Shakespeare to Jane Austen, et cetera. You know, the great works that you have to read in in high school and that AP tests are made of. Um, That is not exactly what Bakhtin is talking about when he's talking about a canon. Um, What he's talking about, rather, is a canonical aspect to a work, meaning a work that is isolated, complete, and not merging with other bodies and the world. So it sounds a little mystical, I think it kind of is a little bit, but what the canonical then in this sense is a work that is not in dialogue with other things. And if we go back to uh, Kristeva uh, and Kristeva's idea of um, synthesizing semiotics with dialogue, right, with Bakhtin concepts of dialogue, then the canonical work, the canon aspect of a work is that which isn't connecting to other things. That brings us to the other type of text, the grotesque. Now, the grotesque invites the viewer to see the interconnectivity of the work to other works. Um, It's continually created and built. Uh, It's filled with holes, it's filled with openings, and yet it's also kind of spongy. It connects things into it. And so you could see the openings, you could see the fissures, you can see the divisions, but you could also see how the work, that this grotesque thing, reaches out and connects to other works. Now that we have the kind of the grotesque in place, and we could see Spaceballs as a grotesque work. It is constantly in extension to, to other things, to other works. Um, however, Spaceballs is also a parody. A work like Ulysses, which is um, not only referencing 
Homer, but a, a collection of other things. You can think of Finnegan's Wake. Finnegan's Wake, I think, references every single work written before Finnegan's Wake and maybe even after Finnegan's Wake. It is allusion with a capital A to the 10th power. Um, however, neither Finnegan's Wake nor Ulysses are parodies. Spaceballs is which means it has this kind of particular function. And so let's look at now intertextuality and parody. A great person to go through this is uh, Linda Hutchian. Um, Again, uh, we talked about her before, but she's written on parody as this kind of form of self-reflectivity, a form that marks the intersection of invention, making something up, writing a script to Spaceballs, and the critique that allows us to come to terms with the past. So with Spaceballs, you have the the parody of the rogue gunner, you know, this kind of Wild West character that becomes Han Solo in the Star Wars world. It becomes Indiana Jones in the 80s. It is the um, the, the character that we often see Dirty Harry. That that is Dirty Harry, right? Um, this is what Bill Pullman's character is in Spaceballs, Lone Star, that that rogue character, and it's a parody of that. And the invention of Lone Star intersects with that which he's parodying. It, it intersects with the this hero, this lone hero. Um, that, that Joseph Campbell talks about and then allows us in, by, by laughing at it, by looking at it critically, to come to terms with our own culture and with the past. Um, and so then parody, maybe unlike satire, um, I don't know if Hutchian says this, but parody then allows the, the celebration of creative expression alongside critical commentary. Um, and in so doing, by having celebration, we're having fun, we're enjoying the movie, we're commenting on the rogue character, etc. This establishes um, difference as being at the heart of similarity. So if we see two things as being similar, what is at the heart of it is actually the difference between them. You know, and that's that's the 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 paradox of similarity. By recognizing things are similar, you also recognize that they're not the same. Now, moving down more closely to Spaceballs itself, um, I had read also this interesting essay on intertextual material and Spaceballs written by Brian L. Ott and Beth Bonstetter, who I, I don't know their work outside of this one essay, but they have this essay titled, We're at Now, Now. Spaceballs as parodic tourism. And so they're looking at illusion, illusion with an A, and intertextual material. And they argue that the constant intertextual material in Spaceballs puts the viewer in the role of a person in a museum, a person walking through a museum. In the case of Spaceballs, it's a museum of science fiction, of 20th century pop culture, American pop culture. The obvious example of this is John Hurt's uh, chess burster scene in the diner scene in Spaceballs. Um, in, in one scene, Lone Star 
goes to a diner and we see in the corner John Hurt dressed like his character from the film Alien and he eats something and then an alien bursts out of his chest and he says, oh no, not again. Then the alien does a song and dance number and disappears. So this is a reference to the the film, Alien, the the Ridley Scott film. And in that film, John Hurt gets an alien in his his chest and it it rips out of him and causes havoc. And that's the plot of the film. Um, They argue, Ott and Bonstetter, I think is how we say her name, um, they argue that this is kind of example of tourism. We're traveling through the universe and we see this reference here, this intertextual material. And so it puts the the viewer in that role. Um, And therefore, Space Walls works less well linearly, so it's not, again, point A to point B to point C, etc., but it's more about ruptures, gaps, and associations. We are interrupting the narrative in order to see the display of Alien, we're interrupting the narrative to, you know, make a joke about um, about the druids or something like that. Uh, we're interrupting the narrative to make a joke about the Schwartz, which is this this play on the word force. We interrupt the narrative to make fun of narrative itself. At one point, Dark Helmet and Colonel Sanders, also a joke that interrupts the narrative they get a video of the film Spaceballs and watch it discussing the the linear nature of time in a movie and they, they watch the, the film in order to find out where the people they're hunting are. And so we interrupt the, the film itself for a brief parodic discussion of linear time in film. And so that's how they're saying the movie works. It's about breaking apart its form putting it back together, fracture. Uh, so then what ends up happening is that the the linear nature of the text dissolves. Uh, I would go even further and say that the film itself, Spaceballs, is entirely composed of intertextual material. That even the, the kind of journey of Lone Star to save the princess and save the day is made up of so many references and allusions that those actually are the same thing, references and allusions, that it really seems to exist very little on its own, that that the skeleton is so bare um, that it's almost not recognizable. And in fact, the skeleton itself... um, is a, a kind of a parodic view of classic narrative structure. So even that is pulled in. Um, and so what we end up getting here is parody as both kind of mocking, but also paying respect. And what we see in this film then is that intertextuality is kind of at the root of modern 20th and 21st century cultural expression that what pop culture ends up being um, 
maybe not in its essence, but certainly a major aspect of it, is its ability to link to other things, to be in conversation with a lot of different works so that it can appeal to a lot of different types of people. Um, and I wonder, I don't have an answer to this, but I wonder if parody then is the sharper edge of pop culture. That pop culture reaches a lot of people through familiarity generated by intertextual connection. And that parody is that which forces us to recognize how we composed ourselves from the culture into which we, we, into which we are enmeshed. All right. And those are my thoughts on intertextuality and um, illusion and adaptation. And I will see you soon with another B-side. Thank you very much. Hey.